This week on Writers, Inc. The biggest murderers we cover, the most well-known ones, Gary Ridgway, who was the Green River Killer, BTK, who was the one in Wichita, um, they led double lives. They had families, um, children, they went to soccer matches, and then they went and killed people at night. People always ask me in interviews why there's such a fascination with true crime, and I always say, because it's the when people hear that, they say, how could somebody like have a job, have a, a sta- quote, stable family for decades and be doing all this on the side and no one can wrap their brain around it. And I think it's a, just a, a complete mystery to a normal person. And that's why people will never get tired of it. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writers, Inc. So for us, it is Thanksgiving, but because we are all insane, we are recording today. So happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day. Happy Thanksgiving. And Kevin is not here, but hey, we wish Kevin and his family a happy Thanksgiving. I I can only imagine what Kevin and his family do on Thanksgiving at, at this point. They there's probably they, they see, he seems very traditional actually like I could see like you know the like the sack racing going on in the backyard and footballs being tossed around and like all that kind of stuff going there on might be bourbon being drunk I'm thinking there's like bourbon I, I think that's a that's a given yeah. and that reminds I got a shout out to Tosco Lee who's um, a, a friend of mine from from ITW I mentioned eggnog like a week or two ago and I got this bottle <laughs> in the mail yesterday from them it's eggnog whiskey so oh I, I haven't opened oh, it yet yes. but I I'm yeah. very much looking forward to opening that yeah. bottle all right if you can't take the whiskey let me know I'll be over I'll drink that <laughs> all right pa- patrick you were telling us about something you heard right, right before we started recording we should probably go into that a little bit yeah the word on the street is that facebook and instagram are gonna have a direct link to your amazon accounts so you could be just cruising along on facebook doing whatever you're doing on facebook and whatever merchandise will pop up and all you have to do is hit one button you don't have to go to the amazon store you're not going to be redirected it's a one-stop shop. It makes it very seamless. Now, I don't know if this is for books quite yet, if this is in beta. The the first time I heard about it was yesterday. So I think you might know a little bit more about this, J.D. Yes, I've actually been working on something similar to this with uh, the folks over at TikTok. Um, basically, a, a, a store um, where you know people can buy directly from the platform and not have to leave. Um, we can send those orders electronically to whoever is going to fulfill. So in my case, it's Simon and Schuster. They they receive that information through some type of data feed and they ship out the books one at a time. Um, so all the platforms are basically chasing this. Facebook and Instagram, I I, I know, are very very close. They're they're it's, it's more. I guess it's like a beta. It's it's available to some people, not everybody. Um, mm-hmm. you can use affiliate links, which is kind of neat. Ooh. You know, if you've got an Amazon affiliate account, you can make money on, on that side too. And, and for those of you who haven't explored that as an author, you, you definitely want to check it out because if you're an Amazon affiliate, if somebody goes to your website and they click on your book and they add it to their shopping cart and then they buy a $3,000 lawnmower in that same order, if it's in the same shopping cart, you actually get a percentage of that sale. So you can, you can make a pretty decent income, 
um, off those those little side hustles. But I, I think the, gen, the the gist of this is all these platforms are basically trying to get to the point where you don't have to leave. You know, they want to keep you captive within that platform. They want you to be able to buy whatever within that platform uh, and then continue scrolling on, make it as seamless and as easy as possible. Um, I can tell you from a book standpoint, um, it's not quite there yet because none of them are able to do a pre-order um, from from what I can tell. So you can go live, you know, after the book is live, but you can't send, you can't collect pre-orders unless you're redirecting to some of those other sites. So if you are redirecting to Amazon, I imagine you could set up a pre-order that way. Um, in my case, because I'm setting it up to go straight to a, a warehouse to a distribution center, I can't because they don't know that they're not able to, to fulfill that. So like a little bit of a hiccup, but you know, books I think are on their way too. How long do you think before that's going to happen, JD? Considering how fast all of this stuff seems to be moving, I, I think we're going to see it early next year, probably roll out to the masses. I mean, you're, you're going to start just noticing it as, yeah, as you scroll your feeds, because I, I know you spend half your day just scrolling Facebook. So like as you're, you're scrolling through those feeds, you're going to you're going to start seeing those buy buttons pop up um, and it's just going to become more and more prevalent. I, I think they're just letting people in, you know, like in, in large groups, you know, just kind of rolling it out in, in, in that kind of fashion. So how do you think this is going to affect Facebook ads? You know, for people who are like heavy into Facebook ads, is this going to even affect it or what do you think that's going to look like? I, I mean, the way that I see this, the way, the way it's been explained to me is people are going to be able to click like directly on that ad and, and buy the book right right there without having to go anywhere else. And, and you know, like they're not even leaving that page, um, you know, which for some people is kind of a thing because, you know, if you're scrolling through your feed, you don't want to necessarily leave that feed you right. know, midway through, you know, seeing whatever it is you want to see. You want to, you know, so some people will, you know, if they see an ad they like, they might just pass over and then go back to it at the end or whatever, but they like to finish what they're doing in Facebook. This allows them to stay within Facebook. Like they want you to, you know, you're, we're already addicted to these platforms. They don't want you to, to ever, ever leave. <laughs> so yeah. for, for better or worse, I guess from a consumer standpoint, it, it's good. But, you know, Joanna Penn's been talking about direct sales for for a while now. Oh, and, sure. and this is just another, you know, thing that, that's building on that. Um, I, I think a lot of the retailers are, are probably getting worried about this kind of thing because the, the more prevalent it becomes, the less we actually need, you know, stores. And, and we saw this to a certain extent when the internet first took off, you know, for those of us that are a little older, when the ability to actually buy stuff on the internet first, first popped out there, you know, it was kind of seen as a novelty at the beginning, um, you know, and it, there was very little that was actually available and it was kind of a hassle to get things shipped to you. It was expensive. So, you know, for the most part, it didn't impact anything, but within a couple of years, they ironed all of that out and Amazon obviously steamrolled everybody and made it so easy. You know, like you can just order from your phone while you're walking from your room to your kitchen and, you know, rather than running over to, to Walmart, um, you know, people want convenience. And this is just another another example of that. Yeah, Absolutely. I think anytime you can make something one click, sales go up. I mean, last night yep. I Ubered my son fast food because I was too lazy to cook. So one click, get it over here. <laughs> I'm a one click <laughs> positive. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, JP, what's in the news? All right. Uh, number one in the news, NaNoWriMo board steps in and temporarily closes online forums. So NaNoWriMo or National Novel Writing Month dot uh, org, their board has temporarily closed the online forums due to varied concerns, uh, particularly around moderation inconsistencies and community safety to conduct an investigation. The board received over 120 pages of information from members and about 50 pages of requested documentation from the NaNoWriMo staff that resulted in them stepping in and shutting down the forums temporarily. Uh, while the claims of child grooming are uh, still unverified by the board, they have emphasized the precautionary nature of their actions pending a detailed investigation. Uh, recognizing that the community's growth has outstripped resources, the board views uh, this as an opportunity to recalibrate. Uh, so 
the following information is information that I've read from screenshots and conversations, but I still think it's valid to talk about. Uh, there was a uh, claim about child grooming. Uh, supposedly, the original um, arguments or, or uh, information was brought to the staff back in June, uh, but action had not been taken uh, to the uh, boards or to NaNoWriMo until November when the board was informed. Uh, and ultimately, the information, whether or not valid or not, was that a moderator uh, was grooming children and leading them on to a different site. So uh, a note from me <laughs> would be that regardless of this outcome, it's a really good time for parents uh, who know that their children are using NaNoWriMo to really talk about online safety, make sure that they're aware of the people that they're talking to, that they shouldn't give information out to anybody, including moderators of sites, um, and that it's just a good time to reset any passwords um, because there are rumors that that moderator in question did have access to that information. Wow. Okay. So th this was basically one bad bad, bad actor? Like in the, in the Supposedly. Thing, it could have been more, but I at least know about one. That's some scary stuff. I mean, my daughter has no clue what the internet is yet, which is great, <laughs> but I know, I know that day is coming. And I just, I, I know, you know, cause I, I write a lot of this stuff in my books, how difficult it is for parents to, to overcome it. You know, teenage kids in particular are always two steps ahead of their parents. You know, it's, a lot of them have, have fake, you know, they'll, they'll have multiple accounts. They've got the ones the parents know about. They've got the other ones. Like there are so many different ways around this. Um, yeah, I mean, you you obviously need to stay on top of it, but like NaNoWriMo always felt like a safe space to me, you know, and I guess it yeah, does to a yeah. lot of people. It's this creative environment, you know, a lot of people helping each other, um, but it just shows you, you can't, you, you have to be vigilant all the time. Yeah. And kids are definitely smart. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many stories yeah. I had from the job where, you know, how did this happen? You know, my kid got sucked into X, Y, or Z and it's really scary, but I would always tell them, it's like, your kid has no privacy. If they're on whatever device or whatever, mm -hmm. it's your job as the parent to know what they are doing. You know, you know a lot of people are like, ah, I don't want to be that parent. You know, yeah, my kid's going to hate me. They're going to push back. Yeah, but also, like, can you be that parent? Because they're smart. They yeah. use private browsers. Their history they're is clear. super smart. Like, I've tried to check yeah. on my son. You can't see anything he's done online ever. So other than me, yeah. like standing over his shoulder, which I do occasionally do and startle him, like it's difficult to see what they're doing. Yeah. Make it, yeah. make it so, you know, they don't know when it's coming. Just surprise them. Like you just said, you know, keep them on their toes because you're never, they are one step ahead of you. They do, they do know more about this stuff than we do, but do your best, you know, that way if something bad does happen, I hope it doesn't. You know, it's like it's not going to be Well, I was sitting on my hands and I was just hoping that it would get better. It That's not a strategy. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear from some parents that are actually doing this because like I, I, I love what you said, Patrick, but I, I know it from being a kid that like that doesn't work. That That's like the random yeah. search of the kid's bedroom that you'll get away with it one time and then your kid will adapt very quickly and come up with some way, you know, some work around so you don't have to deal with that. You know, when you can you can walk into a store right now and buy a burner phone for 10 bucks, you know, you can have fake profiles all over that that burner phone. Your parent, you know, your friend holds on to it for you. Your parents never see it. I mean, for me, like the way my wife and I are approaching this and this may be right. It may be wrong if there even is a right answer is to just keep an open dialogue and, you know, hope that if this kind of thing comes up, you know, our daughter will be willing to talk to us about it. You know, I, I, my parents were like that with me with drinking, you know, like we, we drank when we were in high school. Yep. Um, my parents knew when we drank, like I could call my dad and I could say, Hey, I need you to come and pick me up. Um, and I had many friends where that wasn't the case and they hid all of it from their parents and, you know, things just spiraled out of control and got worse. Whereas, you know, I, I got in trouble, but not because of that, yeah. you know, so 
I wonder, and of course, I don't have kids of my own, but I wonder if it's instead of shifting the focus on that, that parental uh, observation, shifting the focus into saying that your personal data is your power and really show them the the fact that they control that and that they should be questioning when people ask for that information. They should be questioning when people try to guide them to other locations. There are TikTok accounts where someone can look at a profile picture or even a username and find you. So show them those and, and talk about that and say like, this is how people are finding you and show them the data trails because to me, if I were shown that, I would probably realize how important my data is, um, and and I would try to hold that power. So I don't yeah. know if that would work to any parent, but that's what I would do. That is what I try to do too. You know, you're never giving your real name, age, phone number. You're not getting on a camera with people you don't know. Um, so it's all that kind of stuff, and you just you know reiterating that those are you don't know who that person is. They could be like a six year old man that you're talking to. You have no idea. So. Yeah. I try to go that way, and I do do the random checks once in a while over the shoulder just to see what he's yeah. doing. At a girl, you keep doing that, you know. But you know, the open communication <laughs> thing—that's also very important. You know, you, I can't stress that enough. But yeah, be diligent. Be you know, it's it, you're not going to foil every time that they they they're going to be online or whatever. But at least you could try. You know, we had three, four detectives posing as like sixty-year-old as teenagers, you know, as online, you know, and they were getting propositioned by these like 60 year old men, you know, on, a, on the regular, it was so gross. It was just horrible. And that was like these detectives full-time jobs. That's how bad it is. Yeah. Ugh. Next up in the news. Ooh. Cheery. This one better be I happy. love segues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nope. It's about AI. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Artificial whiplash as OpenAI CEO is ousted and reinstated over the weekend. Uh, so Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, was ousted by the company's board on a Friday, uh, but reinstated less than a week on a Wednesday, um, following pressure from employees and investors. Over 700 OpenAI employees threatened to leave following Altman's dismissal, uh, and investors, including Microsoft, exerted pressure to reverse that board's decision. Uh, former Salesforce CEO or co-CEO Brett Taylor and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers joined OpenAI's board while Helen Toner, uh, Tasha McCauley, and co-finder uh, Ilya Sutskever <laughs> were removed following the leadership of Hebel. Altman's firing uh, and reinstatement highlights this philosophical rift in OpenAI, uh, both with the board and leadership regarding its pace, its direction, and, and what development into the commercialization AI is going to have. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, if you were following this, it, it was crazy. So, you know, last week they they announced, or maybe the week before, uh, they would cover the, the legal fees of, of anybody who basically got in trouble with ChatGPT. And there's obviously a lot of disclaimers related to that. Um, my general thinking of what's going on here, and this comes more from me working in the finance industry and seeing years and years of startup companies grow. Um, this company has grown extremely fast. And you've got a guy like Sam who's basically created it. This is his baby, um, who's been forced more or less to bring in, you know, the big money to keep it all going, you know, which brought in Microsoft, brought in this company, brought in that company, brought in board members and brought in thoughts, you know, that very different from his own as far as how he plans to run this company. Um, 
you know, there's obviously a clash there and there's a, a mis there's, there's miscommunication happening. There's basically what he wants to do. And there's what the, you know, the, the board members, what the people behind this, you know, if this company goes public, the people that want, you know, want to see this and that happen in order for this to be a profitable entity. Um, you know, there, there's a serious clash there, but that, that in mind, you know, Sam has been there from the get-go. He's obviously got a huge following. I mean, to see that kind of exodus happen just at, at, with him being ousted and now back, you know, like they, they had to bring him back into the fold. Um, that, that's powerful. Um, you know, and hopefully, I mean, it's, it's going to reshape the company in, in one way or another. Um, hopefully they'll find some kind of middle ground in it. Um, yeah. but this company is just growing so, so quickly. You know, it's difficult to deal with this at any level, but at, at this pace, it's very difficult. Yeah. And I think what JP said at the end there about the philosophical rift over safely developing AI is the biggest issue. So this is an irregular for-profit capitalistic company. Like most startups, it's a nonprofit. That's how they started. So you've got this board who is saying we're developing AI for the benefit of humanity versus someone like Altman who's like, we're doing this fast. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they've called the board, a lot of the board members, AI doomers. So when they were actually trying to replace Altman, they were going to replace him with ex-Twitch CEO Emmett Shear, who was an AI skeptic. So you've got the investors who are tech optimists are like, do it fast. Versus a board who's like, oh, you're going to destroy humanity. And they're having that infighting. So it'll be interesting to see because what happened was the investor said, well, we're going to bring our investment to zero without Altman. And oh, then he's back. So, yeah. It's wild. yeah I mean, it's it, it started as a nonprofit. And I think on paper, technically, they still are. But when you've got this kind of money coming in from large corporations, they're you know, they're, they're, they're driving that car. Yeah. 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 And, and this will eventually become a public entity. They, they may have to do some kind of spin off to make it all happen. Um, but you know, Microsoft doesn't invest in something like this just out of the grace, you know, the, the goodness right. of their heart. They're, they're doing it because there's financial gain to happen for a very, very long time. And they want to make sure they've got their, their feet firmly planted in, the, in that camp. Right. Last up in the news. All right. Freelance isn't free becomes law in New York state. New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed the Freelancers and Free Act into law, aiming uh, at protecting freelancing contract workers, including authors and journalists, from wage theft and ensuring timely payment. Uh, this was initially proposed back in February 2022, but it was vetoed due to cost concerns. Um, and this nearly identical bill uh, was passed uh, by the state Senate and assemblies were uh, with support from organizations like the Authors Guild. The law mandates written contracts and timely payout for freelancers answers, um, adding administrative processes for dispute resolution and empowers the Department of Labor to investigate and act on wage claims. Um, mirroring New York City's uh, 2017 Freelancers and Free Act, the state law extends similar protections to freelancers statewide, covering areas beyond New York City and including administrative oversight uh, and support from the Department of Labor. I mean, when I read this, I've, I really wish we had this back in the day when I was writing for newspapers and magazines because we, we did not. <laughs> you know, you would turn in a story and then you had to chase that payment and you always chase that payment and newspapers and magazines are always you know one one week away we uh, one week away from being broke um you know and you're low on that totem pole they want to pay that electric bill before they're going to pay the person who gave them an article three weeks earlier so so this is all good from that standpoint um you know I, i'd like to see it spread but it is you know this is a new york thing and not everybody is in new york mm -hmm. all right 
With that, JD, who's up this week? This week, we've got Wendy Whitman. So through her decades-long career as an executive producer and on-air reporter for Court TV and The Nancy Gray Show, Wendy Whitman has become an expert on the subject of murder. She's going to explain how she channeled her experience into her latest novel, Retribution, which is out now. Uh, here she is, Wendy Whitman. Wendy Whitman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Before we go any further or we get into the weeds with anything, I got to ask. OJ and Robert Blake, your opinion, guilty or innocent? Um, I wonder, is it okay for me to flat out say that? I would say, yeah. I, yeah, I believe they were both guilty. Yeah, you know, I think so too. Yeah, I didn't follow the Robert Blake trial all that much, but, you know, everybody followed OJ. I mean, it was hard not to. And you were working at Court TV when all this was going on, correct? Yes, I was. To me, it was just a showcase and, you know, I was a cop for 25 years and I was a sergeant for 17 of those and I was in charge of major crime scenes. Yeah. And this just seemed like OJ wasn't really on trial, but the cops were. It was, you know, mistakes and how they handled evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I think, you know, a smart defense attorney, when they think they have a guilty client, and I'm not saying his attorneys thought he was guilty or innocent, but assuming, let's say, for argument's sake, they, they thought he was guilty, um, you have to throw a curveball into the mix and do something. Yeah. So if you're if the if the cops didn't do something wrong, then OJ did something wrong, you know. So I think um, that was their strategy. Yeah, and it worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> and but the civil case didn't work out so great for OJ no, afterwards. No, the wrongful death. No, so, no. but you know what? Let's go back in time. How does a person go from working with Lily Tomlin, George Carlin, and Tom Laughlin, who's also known as Billy Jack, who is also from Milwaukee, yes. to working on Court TV, Nancy Grace, and now being an author. How does that happen? Well, I think, you know, it all sort of just snowballed into, you know, a pattern, I would say. So um, when I was working for George, I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go to law school, and it just seemed like a good idea at the time, and it was sort of like now or never, and it was a very hard decision because I was so happy working for him. But... Um, I ultimately decided to do the law thing. And then when I graduated, it happened in the middle of the first OJ trial. And I never thought of journalism at all. And I knew I didn't want to practice, but I thought if I, this was the time to get a law degree and you can use it in so many different ways. I actually thought I'd use it more for entertainment law, oh, but okay. I was back East and um, cause that's where I went to law school back East and um, where I'm from. And when um, I had to apply for jobs, I thought, oh, well, Court TV actually makes total sense. You know, it sort of combines everything. And so I started working there and 20 years later, um, I had two decades of crime, you know, journalism experience. <laughs> so, you know, what kind of, you know, we don't have to dwell on this too much, but I just find it fascinating. You know, what type of fond memories do you have or little stories about e either, you know, like George Carlin, Lily Tomlin or Tom Laughlin? Um, I love all three of them. Um, Tom passed away a few years ago, and mm -hmm. I did. I was lucky enough to see him a few months before he died, and I was also lucky enough to spend a little time with George a few months before he died. And obviously, Lily's still with us. Um, George, I was just very close to his family, and his wife is a dear friend. Was a dear friend of mine. She also passed away. And um, George used to always say his mother told him, "You have to ask for things in life." And and there was the way he said it. It was such good advice. He said, you just got to ask. And sometimes it'll be no and sometimes it'll be yes, but you have to ask. 
And both Lily and George are just extremely intellectual comedians. And everyone who knows I worked for both of them always compare them. And I think they are two, you know, people throw around the word genius, you know, pretty loosely, but they truly are two comedic geniuses. If I had the pleasure and rare opportunity of watching them work privately and how they thought and how they went about creating their routines and things and they, their minds never, you know, turned off. Well, I personally think that comedians are some of the smartest people like around period, you know, obviously they play that off, you know, they put on their shtick, you know, whatever, you know, their persona is or whatever, but man, I just, you have to be on your game. You, if you're going to be a good comedian, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause they're looking at the world they're taking, there are, they observe, I look at it that comedians like that are, are always observing the world and observing what's wrong with it, what's right with it. Um, have a very good take on human nature and people and what we have in common, what we don't have in common. And then they put their own unique take on it. And it is really fascinating to watch them work and work out their process. So you were working with all these people. You, you mentioned that you went to law school after that and you were thinking about maybe doing entertainment law. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So do you come from a family of lawyers? Is this something I do not. That- I do not. I come from a family of doctors. Oh, but I okay. was too squeamish. I was too squeamish. <laughs> gotcha. So you go into law school and you're kind of thinking entertainment law. Then where did your life take you after that? Uh, to Core TV. Oh, straight to Core TV. Straight okay. To Core TV. Yeah. Okay. And did you ever consider a career like in law enforcement or being a prosecutor? I, I never thought of law enforcement. I think. Um, when I was a little younger, maybe high schoolish days, early college, I used to think, oh, I'd be a great prosecutor because I would be relentless. I would, you know, get them, get them, get them. But when I actually was in law school, I knew at that point in my life, I didn't see myself practicing as an attorney, even in that capacity. If I had decided to practice, I think that would have been a really fun thing. I have some very close friends who are, who are Manhattan DAs, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting to hear their stories and how they approach a case. And um, I'm also very friendly with Jerry Boyle, who was Jeffrey Dahmer's attorney, and I watched him in court in person, not for that case, but for another case. And to watch the way he woos a jury and and proceeds, you know, presents his case, it is it is um, a very unique um, skill to be able to do it and do it well. And you have to be very smart and really on your game. Okay. So I think that would have been a fun challenge, but ultimately I never did it. Okay. Now, Court TV, how long did you uh, work at Court TV? Um, I worked at Court TV for about 15 years, and then I went to Nancy Grace's show for about another four so what? roughly 20 years between them. Okay. What was your uh, primary job at Court TV? When I left, I was vice president in charge of all the live trial coverage. So that included part of a team that selected which trials we were going to cover, overseeing the production staff, field stuff, coordinating everything pretty much. That sounds like a very hectic, but kind of fun job to have. My job was my vacation. I loved it. We we were so happy there. We said it was the best kept secret in television. <laughs> it was the most amazing place to work. And um, yeah, we did it. We did a fantastic job covering things. We never sensationalized anything. We always respected all the players involved. And um, it was it was the best job in the world. Now, I imagine that for all these years and all these trials, you see a lot of negative. You see a lot of the ugly in society. Did that kind of wear you down, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, we There were a couple of cases we did that I literally had nightmares for months. And 
it, it was impossible. You know, I, I would put in very long hours there if we were doing a West Coast trial, say like Robert Blake or something or OJ, mm -hmm. something like that. It would be common for me to be there till two in the morning and you're putting in such long days and you're so involved in the case and so invested in everything. And you hear such horrific things every day. And of course, it taints your whole opinion on human nature. And we, we were all paranoid and suspect of everybody because we covered, you know, cases where the defendant was a lawyer, a doctor, or it could be someone who was homeless. It could be someone who, you know, just went right. the gamut right. of everything. Anyone can be a murderer. And I think a lot of the biggest murderers we cover, the most well-known ones, Gary Ridgway, who was the Green River Killer, BTK, who was the one in Wichita, mm -hmm. um, they led double lives. They had families. Um, children, they went to soccer matches and then they went to kill people at night. Um, and it's, it's bad. And I always, people always ask me in interviews why there's such a fascination with true crime. And I always say, cause it's the, when people hear that, they say, how could somebody like have a job, have a, a state quote, stable family for decades and be doing all this on the side and no one can wrap their brain around it. And I think it's a, just a, a complete mystery to a normal person. And that's why people will never get tired of it. So how did you cope with that? How did you cope with all the negativity and all the, you know, everybody's a killer and, you know, and all this kind yeah. of crazy stuff? Well, part of it, linking it to George and Lily, I always, when they say, how did you go from comedy to crime? We used black humor at Core TV as a defense mechanism against everything we saw all day. So we were like, we were like the king and queen of um, black humor. Um, so that's, I think that was a huge defense we used at work um, to, to deal with the awful things we saw all day long. Yeah, you know, and I think that's very common with doctors, first responders, et cetera. The gallows humor is a coping mechanism. Oh, absolutely. It really is. And the the more horrendous the situation, the the darker the humor got, really. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Just, yes. So how difficult was it going from being this court reporter and you know, producing all this stuff? to that is real life to writing fiction and why did you pivot to that um well we all got laid off in 2009 when they changed core tv to true tv and then that's oh. when a lot of us went to nancy grace's show and see other things at cnn and hln um so it was sort of when we were leaving um a friend of mine there said you need to write a book and i thought that's funny because i've been thinking of that because i felt i had literally decades of knowledge of of yeah. those intimate details of some of these even some of the well-known crimes there are there are hidden details that never really got publicized that people don't know about i thought i have this whole wealth of information and people are so obsessed with true crime it makes sense to write a book and i was going to write a non-fiction book and i know it's going to sound like contrived but i literally did wake up in the middle of the night one night and i realized i could write fiction not non-fiction <laughs> okay and um I, I started writing, I wrote till five in the morning, and then I literally wrote every day for the next three or four months till the first draft was done. So it was it was always in the back of my mind to try to write a book. Um, I just didn't think it would be fiction. And then when I wrote the first book, I knew I had to write a sequel. So that's how it went. You know, it's like you had a front row seat to yeah. all this craziness that, you know, Absolutely. most people, you know, just are oblivious to. And, yeah. you know, where the they certainly don't think about it all day long, you know, they're right. not always thinking yeah. about it. Absolutely. But, you know, for most people, it's that thing that happens somewhere else. It's not yeah, right. in their lives until it happens to them until or a loved one, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, you pivot that. And another thing I would think, because true crime, you know, like you could have your own podcast, you could have your own something. Right. There's a lot of directions. You still could, obviously. I mean, yeah, I thought about it. 
Yeah, well, I think you should. You know, you get yeah, it's, know. it's red hot right now. You know, yeah. you know, just just throwing it out there. I, I think yeah. <laughs> I think I think you'd have a lot of interest, and you literally had a front row seat to all of it, right? Yep, absolutely. So now you're you wake up in the middle of the night and you start writing fiction. Did you tell anybody that it's like, hey, you know what, this is what I'm going to do? Um, I didn't until the first draft was done because I felt mm. superstitious about it. Because then I thought, what if I don't finish it? Then what's the big deal and all this? So I I sort of did it more in secret until the first, once the first draft was done, I felt good about it. Um, Of course, I still didn't know if I'd get a publisher, but I felt more comfortable telling people, hey, I just wrote a book, you know, kind of. Right. You know, because you're really putting yourself out there, you know. Oh, absolutely. It's quite a journey. It really is. It is. You know, my hat's off to everyone who has the guts to hit the publish button because, you know, you are literally throwing yourself out there and there's all the trolls and all the naysayers or whatever else. Yeah. And odds are you may not be a best-selling author. You know, it could bomb, it could do, you know, whatever. And you put all this work into it and then you feel like, oh, you can be so deflated. It's a very difficult, it is a very difficult road. It really is. It is. So let's talk more about your books. Why do this? I know you woke up in the middle of the night and you had this epiphany and you started writing this first draft. It could have just stopped right there. But you yeah. you kept on pushing forward. What do you think was pushing you in that direction? Really, what was pushing me? I always say my first book was a tribute to murder victims, and there were mm. I even though it was fiction, I incorporated little um, bits of true cases, about twenty true cases throughout the book from the protagonist's thoughts and all of that because she was loosely based on me. So I, I really do think what pushed me. I knew what I wanted to do with the first book. In my mind, it was fi- it was fiction, but in my mind. I wanted to do very specific things that I would have done in a nonfiction book. And I highlighted two cases that I got obsessed with. They never got, I always say they got cheated in the media. And that was Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom's murders in Knoxville and the Wichita Carr brothers case. They, they murdered five people. And those two cases were the two cases that haunted me the most from core TV. And I felt they never got the right coverage that they warranted. And um, so I put them in the book and even though it was fiction, and I think um, that's what drove me to to get the book done. Okay. Now, your first, your debut novel is Premonition. That's Correct. book one of the Deer Killer series. Correct. And that's, you know, if you look in under the genres, it's under serial killer fiction. Right, right. Now, why do you, I and mean, we talked about, you know, like true crime is red hot. You know, right. people are very interested. Why do you think they're so interested in serial killers? Where's the fascination? I think part of the fascination with the serial killers is that they obviously keep getting away with it. Like there are people, you know, like the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, uh, BTK, Dennis Rader, Green, uh, the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. They killed for decades. And I think so part of the fascination, I think, with serial killers is the fact that they're obviously getting away with it, um, which is very unfortunate because if they like like even in the Golden State Killer, there were about two or three times where in theory he should have been caught and he wasn't for different reasons. Right. And that would have saved other lives, obviously. So I think serial killers um, versus someone who just does a one-off killing, which of course all killings are horrible and awful and they all deserve to be punished to the max and all that. But I think um, something about a serial killer draws you in because you feel like they must be manipulating people and living their little life and then they come out and do it again. And I think there's something more intriguing to people about that. Yeah, you know, like the the popular TV show Dexter, you know, that was right. on for a long time. And yeah. he was literally a serial killer, but yeah. there was a part of you that felt bad for him. 
Well, because he was supposedly killing the bad guys. So right. And so you were conflicted with him. Right. And on top of that, he was, you know, his mom was killed in front of him. Right. You know, he has right. this ultra traumatic childhood. Right. Backstory. Yeah. And there's a piece of you that's like, okay, he shouldn't be doing this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but right. at the same right. fact, yeah, it's like, well, you know, so I think that bodes well as far as having your bad guy not just be one dimensional. Right. Exactly. And you that's know, what you want to do with characters. I always say, you know, there are only so many plots. People say that people keep recycling the same plots, which even when TV shows and stuff, I think what, what makes something a success, whether it's a book or a TV show or a film, you have to love the characters and get invested in the characters. And it's really the kind of characters an author or any kind of writer create um, that makes something successful or not. Because like Yellow Jackets is very similar to Lost it has or Lord, Lord of the Flies. Like they're all similar right. kind of themes, but they got a great group of actors together, a great group of characters. And, and you get invested in the show, even though initially you say, oh, that's just like Lost. Why am I going to watch that? So um, I think that's what 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 affects a book tremendously you have to really get invested in the characters and care about them all right so in premonition you know it's the deer killer series it's a serial killer right. when you started writing that book did you start out saying hey i'm going to write a series or did the story take you in that direction i think once i understood how i was going to end it um i knew i had to write a second book I could have, I certainly could have left it after one book, but it, it didn't feel complete to me. I, I, I had, I, I knew what I wanted to do in the second book, not all the details, not all the plot, but I knew inside, I knew I was going to have to write a sequel once I understood how I was ending it. Gotcha. Now book two, Retribution, which comes out July 25th. Correct. Tell us about this book. Well, it picks up exactly where Premonition left off and it continues the story. And, you know, I've been asked in some interviews I've already done for it, if it can be a standalone book. And I answer sort of yes and no, because I think, I think obviously if you're writing a sequel, even whether it's a series, a third book, or, you know, some authors write 15 books with the same main central character. Right. But this is a, they probably changed the plot. This is a distinct, this is a sequel in terms of that the plot continues and the story continues with most of the same characters, some new ones. And I think um, obviously if you didn't read the first book, you're you're not gonna have as full a comprehension of the story as if you did read it. Could you read it alone? Yeah, and, and I it's hard for me to judge because I already know what's in the first book. So <laughs> right. it's hard for me to judge if someone just sat down and read it, if it would make sense to them. But obviously honest as on an, an honest answer would be that of course it's better to read the first book first. Yeah, you know, reading your uh, retribution, and I have not written read premonition. You can understand most of it. I think that it it, okay. it does it does well as a standalone because it's a good story. You know, you've yeah. got good characters. It's a good story. Now, you know, we alluded to like the movies and that kind of thing earlier. When you're writing a book, either this book or your other one, do you have the characters? Do you have a certain actor or actress in your mind when you're writing these characters? That's a really good question. I did visualize when I was writing um, Premonition, every scene I visualized how it would look. And I did a lot of local because I live in Connecticut. Mm. I was drawing on my memory of local places. And I think that makes it much, people always say, write what you know, you're right. going to be much more authentic and accurate. If you, if you just, if I just pick some random place I've never been to, obviously I'm not going to, even if I research, it's not the same as living someplace and knowing what the place is sure. like. So um, 
Yeah, I think um, I that's part of the, you know part of the reason why I did set it in in Connecticut and everything. Now, is there a specific actor or actress that you had in mind when you were writing this that you would like to see play these uh, people, these characters? Um, I I I was thinking of Jeff Bridges for the um, detective. Ooh. Okay. Um, for Vito, and um, I had a couple of not well known actresses, but ones I've seen in things that I thought might work for Hank. Um, and Carrie, I never really was sure which one would play her, but I did visualize the scenes. And I would play around with potential actors, but I think um, I did visualize the scenes more than maybe the actual actors, although it does help. It, I think all of that helps you write as you're, it, you have to see it. Otherwise it's not even like a real thing, you know? Right. I totally agree. In your with mind, you. you have to see it. You have to see yeah. It. Yeah. And some authors go really deep in the woods. I mean, I've interviewed yeah. some authors that they'll have a picture of that actor or actress like on their bulletin board. Oh, really? And, That's yeah. I and they'll have like all the scenes mapped out, and they'll have yeah. pictures. Yeah. You know, of either like you know landmarks, you know that location, yeah. a specific actor or actress, and you know, and they're trying to connect the dots that way. Yeah. So, when you're writing retribution, what was your routine, or do you have a specific routine, or is this something? How does that work for you? Well, I um, I would say for the first book, I made myself write a certain number of pages a day until the first draft was done because I felt if I didn't set a goal like that, I just wouldn't finish it. So I did basically the same thing with Retribution. I just hit a, a bit of a – I never had writer's block. I hit a bit of a roadblock because in, in Premonition, I never did a, an official outline, but I knew exactly where I wanted to, the story to go, and I knew what I had to do to get there. With Retribution, I felt more that I could have taken the whole storyline in a million different directions. So after I wrote the first few chapters, I had to sort of sit and take a pause and think, what, what do I really want the story to turn into and and the plot and twists and all that? And once I worked that out, which took me like a couple of weeks to think through the, all that until I realized what I needed to do. And then um, I, again, made sure I wrote a certain amount per day until I got the first draft done. And once you get the first draft done, there's an endless editing process. Oh, sure. But at least you know it's it, you have something to work off of. It's different than not having it done. Even what, was your, what was your word count goal that you had for every day? My my count goal, my word yeah, count. Yeah, your word count goal. Like my how word many count? words? I would say um, I was I would estimate between like maybe ten to fifteen to twenty pages a day. Oh, okay. Like that, in that ballpark. And were you uh, wake up at the wee hours of the morning and I'm start a writing person, right away? Or? So I write okay. better at night. So um, I, I did write during the day, but I often would also write just at night. I I definitely do better at night. Gotcha. Now, without giving too much away, could you tell us a little more about Retribution? Because, you know, like I said, you've got good um, characters and you got a good bad guy, too, that people are interested yeah. in. Yeah. Well, I wrote it from the serial killer's point of view and which I think people enjoy getting to the mind of a killer. And I always sort of get around in interviews, sadly to say it wasn't that hard for me to get into the mind of a killer because yeah. we've covered so many killers. <laughs> yeah. I think I really do start to understand how they think. Right. And, um, there was one scene where he kills this one girl um, where as I was writing it, it's like, you know, a lot of authors I've gotten friendly with say, you'll see that the, the characters start to take on a life of their own. And I thought, oh, that sounds like, such bullshit kind of thing, but it's actually true. Yep. And I was writing that scene and it was like, he did take over and it was so obvious how he was thinking and what he wanted to do to her. And it was almost like scary as I was writing it. And I think that's another thing. If you develop really strong, good, interesting characters, 
they sort of start, because you start to understand what they're going to do next and where they're going to go. And there were certain scenes I in no way planned to write. And also I realized that's exactly what he would do. He wouldn't stay at the diner. He wouldn't do this. He would do this next. And I think the, so the challenge for any author, I really think is again, developing great characters because they'll lead you to a good plot and you'll start to understand how they think and where, what they would do and what they wouldn't do and how the story is going to have to unfold. And that, so it, so once I decided on the general plot, it was really easy to keep writing it because I just understood who was going to interact with who and what they were mm. going to want to do. What I liked about it, again, you know, writing from the point of view of the serial killer, that I, I did like that. Yeah. And him kind of taunting the police. Yes. You know, the investigation. Which a lot of them do, which a lot of them do. That's how BTK got caught. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that was probably my favorite part. Of, yeah. of that book is just... it was it was a lot of fun writing from the killer's point of view it was a lot of fun all right so what's next for you are you gonna write a sequel to this book or where are we going i did start the third book right after i finished the second because i got an idea how to start it okay and a few weeks ago i got a, a thought in my head and i wrote a few more pages um that I, so i just sort of changed the beginning i've also been thinking of doing going back to nonfiction, which it was a very original thought mm. because I got a very good idea for a specific book that I think would really be good. It would obviously require a lot of research and take longer to write. Cause you can really, you can really, I think for fiction, you can, any, any decent writer, I think can, if once they work out a plot and characters, you can crash out a first draft, which again, is going to have to be edited, but you can crash out a first draft of a totally fictitious book in four months easily um, because you don't really need to do any research. I had to do some research on my book because I put true cases in and I wanted to remember that I, I wanted to make sure I remembered all the little bits, the facts accurately. Um, but it's not the same as the book I'm thinking of writing would require a tremendous amount of research. But I think it might be fun to mix it up. But I also might just do the third book of this series and, and end it as a trilogy and then go on to the nonfiction book I have I have as an idea. But, or a podcast. Oh, or you could do or a podcast. podcast. I have been thinking yeah. of a podcast. Yeah, because you definitely have the chops for it. You've got the background. I yeah. and like I said before, true crime is super popular. Right? Yeah, That's I think like a podcast the podcast would be a lot of fun. I think yeah. it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'd love to be on it. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, you'll be you'll be my first guest if I do it. <laughs> okay. I promise. You have that on tape. <laughs> All right. So what would your best piece of advice be for a rookie writer? Or maybe even somebody who's been writing for a while and they feel like they're just kind of spinning their wheels and they're not going in the right direction or going forward. I think my advice would first be don't even think about a publisher or an agent while you're actually doing your initial writing because it's just going to distract you and demoralize you. And you have to write about something like I'm passionate about murder. I've always been passionate about victims' rights. If you write about something, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, that you really care about, the words will flow. And once you get your story straight and all that. So that's the main thing. And then I would also give them a heads up that the whole marketing and, and selling of the book is a whole different thing than <laughs> writing it. And uh, that's something that you really don't get a lot of advice on. And, and it's a, it is a minefield and there's, you know, the writing is the fun part. And then everything after that, you really, it's like um, learning by gunfire or whatever that expression mm -hmm. is. Um, at baptism by gunfire, whatever that expression yep, is. Baptism so by it, fire. Is, it is a, a huge learning curve. Um, how to market a book, who to hire, who not to hire, what to do. Um, it is it is the ordeal part of of being an author, but the writing is is really fun. It's um it's everything after that is I love doing the interviews and I love 
being before audiences, the panels I've done and things like that, but it's the overall approach to marketing and all that that entails that's difficult. Okay, guys, I got to ask you, OJ and Robert Blake, guilty or not guilty? Who? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, oh yeah, you weren't born yet, JP. That's right. I, I'm showing my age. Okay, JD. Where's Kevin? <laughs> Kevin's the one with the Bronco. We need to ask him that question. <laughs> Ooh, is, that's right. The infamous Bronco. If, if it wasn't for OJ, we wouldn't have Kardashians. That's very true. There you go. So guilty or not guilty? What do you think, JD? Gu- gu- guilty and guilty for sure. <laughs> Most likely. Uh, they, they totally did it. Most I'm willing to go guilty. out on a limb. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, but people were fascinated with it. There's no doubt about it. I love talking to Wendy. You know, she started out her career being an assistant to Lily Tomlin, George Carlin, and Tom Laughlin, the guy who played Billy Jack. Again, like JP and Christine don't know who Billy Jack are, is probably, I'm guessing. JD knows. <laughs> I, I know, but do you guys know who George Carlin is? Because he, he's, he's one of them. Yes. I've heard the name. I know who yes. George Carlin is, for yeah, sure. George Carlin, he's, he's probably one of my favorite comedians. I love that that whole era. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, extremely, extremely smart guy. Yes. So one thing that jumped out at me in this interview was when she was George Carlin's assistant, she got to know his family. And she said that one of the best pieces of advice that she ever got that George that George passed on to her that was passed on to him by his mom was you have to ask. And so many authors don't do that ask, you know, and I don't think you could do it cold. You know, I'm not going to call try to get a hold of James Patterson and ask him to blurb my book, you know, that kind of thing. But how do authors or how should they do the ask? How should they set that up? See, I'm not afraid of making that ask. Um, so, but I, I don't like pick up the phone. I don't email them straight off the bat unless like that's the way they're, you know, like I, I basically through friends, if I want to contact somebody like that, I'll figure out how that particular person likes to be contacted. Um, and I'll go that route. But, you know, like I got to know Dean Koontz because I sent him a copy of Fourth Monkey and then he sent me an email and then we just got to know each other after that. I, I'd never met him before that. Um, you know, Patterson was the same deal. I sent him a copy of Fourth Monkey and, and he called and, you know, we, we started a dialogue. And, you know, that turned into a friendship and we're on book five together now. Um, so I've never been afraid to do that because the worst case is somebody just says no, um, you know, and then that's yeah, that basically puts you right back to where you were before. But I, I think it, it makes you feel icky, like nobody likes to make that ask. But in this business, you have to make it. And the nice thing is every author that you're asking, regardless of how big they are, they've had to make that ask, too. So they understand just how awkward it is. I think asking is hard. It's hard. I mean, yeah, I have a hard time making the ask because I'm totally, I'm introverted and I don't know, childhood trauma, whatever. So I have to give myself a stern talking to before I ask, but I I will ask um, sometimes (laughs) if it's something that's important (laughs) to me for sure. Yeah. But usually it's the same thing. I don't like cold call people. I don't know that anyone likes that or that that's that successful. So usually when I'm asking something, it's somebody I know. Um, or somebody who knows somebody that I'd like to talk to or get advice from. So for sure. Yeah. I don't often cold call, but when I do, I just call out how awkward it is. <laughs> Cause I'm just like, Hey, I know this is awkward, but X, Y, Z, uh, usually just that open candidness works well. So that's usually what I try to go for is just trying to be as honest as possible. Like I know this is awkward, but I'm just asking. So. Right. 
Well, I think and don't you know, make me ask. Don't make me have to ask again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's. A, I hate for you to say no, and we have to come back again. I think there's a couple things that are helpful. One is you know don't shoot for the stars right away. Maybe if you're going to do an ask, ask an author that's just a little bit ahead of you, like one or two steps ahead of you. So that way, it's a again you're not going with like a top you know like a James Patterson or whoever you know. It's like okay. You know, find your like middle ground, perhaps. And second, be of service. You know, what do you have to offer these people? You know, do you have a, a specific skill set? Do you have something? Or, you know, it's like I, I'm a huge fan of Tim Ferriss. And back in the day, you know, he would go to conferences and volunteer to be like a busboy cleaning up dishes, you know, whatever, just so you'd have that opportunity to speak to that keynote speaker and pick their brain for five minutes. Because he he already had an in, it wasn't cold, but he volunteered. He he worked for it, so that's my two cents. I think too, and I, I think too, be open to whatever a, a quote unquote counter offer may be. Sure, I mean, you may be going in looking for this kind of help or this kind of mentorship. They may be like, hey, I'm working on this project over here and I need a couple beta testers in it and it'll still help you move forward. Do that. You know what I mean? Like be open to any sort of difference. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I think it's just important just not to be a pest. Don't go in being like, I've written the best book in the world and you need to, you know, (laughs) like go in with some humility, be open to whatever and if someone says no cool don't pester them right so yep. so any of you have thoughts on writing comedy you know we kind of brushed on it i think that would probably be one of the toughest things to do i write comedy really you do yeah yeah nerds is comedic uh i do like cozy comedy but yeah uh one thing is like the when co-writing uh comedy is really fun because the whole point of like the whole point of uh the nerd serial is that i'm writing to make my co-author laugh my co-author is writing to make me laugh and so like we have that instant communication back and forth as to like what is funny um and then there's just something about like catty comedic characters like that sarcastic tone that i just love putting on the page so i love that act of comedy and writing that on the page I, I put a lot of it in um, Fourth Monkey, um, but then I started getting all the phone calls from the translators and translating comedy into other languages is insanely mm-hmm. difficult. Um, and it kind of got to the point where like I, it, I, it was just overwhelming. And like sometimes it falls flat. Like, you know, one of my translators for I think it was Italian, like they just they didn't get it. Oh, um, yeah. you know, so the book That's fell true. flat, you know, because of because of that. Um, so I just it, it adds another another dynamic to the whole thing. Interesting. Yeah, that's something I haven't thought about. Yeah, I know we had had this conversation with uh, JP's co-author about what was it Shrek? Something that didn't translate because they didn't have the well the gumdrop uh, yes, buttons and that. the ginger and didn't yeah. understand, and they had translated it to something <laughs> ridiculous, and everyone's like, "What is this person <laughs> talking about?" Yeah, but yeah, I think it's extremely hard. I found out that yeah. the only one who thinks I'm funny is me. So. but i mean in most Uh, books there's going to be elements of comedy but writing just a straight comedy that would be super tough i think that's for sure yeah so any of you uh true crime junkies you know court tv any of that kind of stuff not i don't think court tv even exists anymore but back in the day it did how about true crime nope no wow no you guys are in the minority (laughs) because people are fascinated with it they are just they can't get enough Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think people are so like hooked on it? 
I, I can't answer that. But what I do know is that my partner loves uh, true crime. And I often go to bed listening to podcasts about people getting murdered. So oh, it is my dreams. least favorite thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but yes, I'm very aware that people love true crime. Yeah, I think what uh, Wendy said about, you know, thinking they're just like the nice next door neighbor and then you're finding out the horrific things that they did and you're trying to wrap your brain around that kind of cognitive dissonance how can you be the baseball dad while you know you're murdering people in your basement yeah i mean it is fascinating right i I think my my wife's um father actually lived across the street from the btk killer in in wichita um and nope nobody in the neighborhood had had any clue you know for the reason you just said i mean and it's not like i mean they don't put a sign out in front of their house. You know, they don't parade in their, their front yard, you know, with a, a knife or anything like they're, you know, this, this is something they obviously, they, they don't want to get caught. You know, Honk they're, if they're you love it, serial killers. As clandestine right. as possible. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is like, you know, being a serial killer, like that doesn't actually pay, you know, like you still need a day job. You still right. you're going mm-hmm. to work. You know, some of them have a family because it's a, it's a good cover or just because they have a family, you know, it's, it, it it's it's one of those things like a you know like on on Dexter you know even he's got a job you know <laughs> I think and and all those those normal things tend to to make them blend you yeah. know just look out your window right now at all your neighborhood houses how well do you know those people yeah our neighbors you had don't. a wood chipper out the other day I might need to uh, look at them twice I don't know <laughs> <laughs> so darker gallows humor you know it's huge in first responders emergency rooms. People dealing like with high stress, you know, jobs. How do you how do you guys incorporate it into your stories, or do you? Well, I mean, you honestly probably experience this more than any of us. But you know, I've worked with a lot of people in law enforcement, and I found that when they're by themselves, their humor is extremely dark, um, oh, yes. and it's a it's a coping mechanism. You know, like they they basically develop that weird that dark sense of humor, and it helps them get through the stuff that they're seeing on a daily basis. And they don't show it to the public, you know, for sure, because of you know the the repercussions of that. Um, but in the people in law enforcement that I've met, the ones that have that dark humor are the ones that are in it for a long time. You know, 10, 15, 20 years until retirement. They, they can do that. Um, the ones who don't develop that humor are the ones that end up, you know, moving to, you know, reass- getting reassigned from homicide to something else. They like, they, they can't cope with it without, without something like that, which I think is telling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, just from my experience, the ickier the situation, the more heinous that really ramps it up because like you said, JD, it, it is a coping mechanism. And one of the biggest mistakes I've s- seen in stories or whatever is we never talked about kids you know, there are certain things that are completely uh, off base. You know, you, it's out of bounds. You cannot go there. You know, you can make fun of, you know, certain things, but you can't make fun of other things. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess that's a tricky balance. But OK, we're running out of time. So I'm going to wrap this up on this turkey day. J.D., who's up next week? Next week, we've got Kaz Freer. She's the international best-selling author of Sweet Little Lies. Her latest book is called Five Bad Deeds, and it releases December 5th. Sounds great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.